From the high desert of Boulder, Colorado, a mutant nexus at the base of the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, about a mile above the sea level portion of the Babylon Matrix, where we are nestled just beneath the beautiful Flatiron Mountains. This is Jonathan Zapp of ZappOracle.com. Welcome to the podcast of The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts. And this is a review of a amazing book of the same name by British paranormal researcher Joe Fisher. It is no great accomplishment to hear a voice in the head. The accomplishment is to make sure that it is telling you the truth, because the demons are of many kinds. As Terence McKenna put it in the archaic revival, some are made of ions, some of mind. The ones of ketamine you'll find stutter often and are blind. The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts is a spellbinding paranormal detective story, elegantly written and as haunting and irresistible as its title implies. The implications of what British paranormal investigator and writer Joe Fisher discovers at the apparent cost of his life are staggering and of such profound implications for all inhabitants of this particular plane of reality that as over the top as this may sound, this book may, may be one of the more important ever written. The title capsulates in perfect microcosm the subject of the book and also the effect of the book on the reader, at least this reader. I actually had a paranormal experience the last night of reading this book, which I will relate later, that was a type related to phenomenon reported in the book and also related to the mind parasite subject which I have written about extensively. This book is itself a rabbit hole, a rabbit hole with a certain suction, an undertow pulling you in as the author is pulled into an ever more high stakes involvement with the phenomenon. Joe Fisher experiences the classic pitfall of the paranormal researcher. He begins as an observer, but becomes ever more obsessed and affected, even overpowered by the object of investigation. As Nietzsche put it, Battle not with monsters, lest you become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. This is the sort of book that carries with it an element of danger for the reader. It has an irresistible allure, like an overripe fruit hanging lowly on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a fruit I found myself reaching for at the very first moment I heard mention of the book's title. Essentially, this book pulls back the veil on the channeling and spirit guide phenomenon phenomena and looks and compels you to look through a glass darkly at evil in one of its more beautiful, complex, seductive, ingeniously manipulative forms. While it is dangerous to be unaware of such dark possibilities and manipulative entities, it may also be dangerous to cast your attention in their direction. Attention is not just internal. It is also a beacon visible to others, and not all of those others are visible to us. That's one of several reasons I'm providing a fairly extensive review of this book. I will also announce a bailout point for those of you who are actually prepared to hunt down this book and read it in the immediate future. But if you're not sure that you're going to make that a top priority, then at least this, read this review. It's a pretty extensive review. Because the findings of this investigation are much too significant to be overlooked. Better yet, 
read the review and get this book, which is a classic in the field of paranormal investigation and deserves an honored place in your personal library. In case I've been too lukewarm in my praise of this book, let me add that it has intense entertainment value to read, finely crafted sentences, perceptive details of people and places, observations that are nuanced and multi-layered, a narrator who earns his reliability as a witness, even as he descends into the most unreliable of circumstances. The following succession of events and realizations has a haunting, gothic effect on the reader, like a palantir that compels <clears throat> that compels and obsesses your attention, but without excessively distorting your view. And if that wasn't enough praise to make this book shimmer darkly in your mind's eye and compel you to read it with the obsessive attention it deserves, I don't know what else to say. Joe Fisher began his investigation of the channeling phenomenon after completing an investigation into reincarnation and publishing The Case for Reincarnation. Summarizing his attitude toward that subject, uh, Joe Fisher includes a wonderfully incisive quote from Voltaire. It is no more surprising to be born twice than it is to be born once. Near the end of the book, Fisher quotes William James, the great Harvard-based pioneer in the psychological study of spiritual phenomena, who said in 1909, after completing a study of mediumship, the refusal of modern enlightenment to treat possession as a hypothesis to be spoken of as even possible, in spite of the massive human tradition based on concrete human experience in its favor, has always seemed to me a curious example of the power of fashion in things scientific. That the demon theory will have its innings again is to my mind absolutely certain. One has to be scientific indeed to be blind and ignorant enough to suspect no such possibility. And this might be a good bailout point for those of you who are going to read the book soon because I'm about to go right into the content and situations of the book. At the very first channeling session Fisher attends, a very eloquent and charismatic spirit guide named Russell, who claims a very specific prior incarnation in the 19th century, speaks through a young woman named Aviva who is suffering from leukemia. The setting is Aviva's apartment in Toronto. Russell introduces himself to Joe and tells him that he has a spirit guide, a woman named Philippa, whom he has supposedly known for many lifetimes. Their last incarnation together was in the 18th century in a village in Greece where there were lovers ostracized by the community. Philippa, unlike Joe, chose not to reincarnate again after this 18th century incarnation. Speaking through Russell, Philippa immediately demonstrates a shrewd understanding of Joe's psychology. She recognizes his history of unstable romantic relationships and places their last earthly relationship in Greece a country Joe had lived in and with which he had particularly positive associations. Russell relates. She says this was for her during the immediate past life in Greece. You were a male and she was a female. You were to be her suitor. However, you both transgressed in the eyes of the community. You were sent from the village and did not return. She says she did not wish for this to happen. However, the village is more powerful than the one. Joe immediately felt seduced 
And so it seems like she might have been influenced by the uh, Star Trek movie where uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy's character, Spock, says that. Joe immediately felt seduced by this disincarnate lover and the mythic star-crossed lover scenario while his, quote, skeptic inside screamed in protest, unquote. The medium, so he kind of feels himself pulled in, but at the same time can feel his inner critic saying, you know, whoa, uh, watch out. You may be getting tricked or something. The medium, Aviva, is a laboratory technician who suffers from leukemia and is at first highly skeptical and resistant to the channeling sessions, which she cannot remember when brought out of trance. Tapes of the sessions are played for Aviva, revealing a number of distinct disincarnate beings, each with their own accent and speech patterns and highly specific knowledge unknown to her waking personality. Russell, who presents himself as Aviva's guide, spends much time being solicitous for Aviva's fragile physical health, offering at times specific warnings and advice. At other times, he offers intriguing metaphysical philosophy. When Joe's real-life girlfriend, Rachel, attends a session, her guide immediately emerges and with his own distinctive accented voice, a thick Scottish brogue, and he provides specific details of past lifetimes he and Rachel have supposedly spent together and an acute understanding of some of Rachel's predilections. Rachel finds herself inexplicably repulsed by the sessions and feels a, quote, a certain intangible negativity in the air, unquote. Joe believes that Rachel is increasingly jealous of the intimate lover-like bond between him and Philippa and feels that this accounts for her resistance to the sessions. Ultimately, Rachel would leave Joe after he becomes ever more obsessed with his discarnate lover and guide. Both Russell and Philippa seem very offended when anyone refers to them as spirits. On one occasion, Philippa says, and you use that awful word again, spirits. There are no spirits. We are all people. People are people. It is your own growth, which is the most important thing you should be seeking. There is nothing spiritual or ethereal about it. We all come from the same place, and we will all arrive at the same place. We are all people. We are not spirits. Joe observes about the strengthening connection between him and his discarnate lover. Quote, Philippa, Philippa and I seem to think alike, feel alike, and see the world from a near identical perspective. Knowing that she understood my motives, my behavior, and my reactions better than I did myself, both confirmed my belief in Philippa and left me feeling intensely vulnerable. I learned to accept this vulnerability and grew to trust that she would not exploit my defenselessness. No matter what I said or how I said it, my words were always interpreted just as I intended them to be. Much more than a subject of research and a wellspring of information on discarnate life, Philippa rapidly became an advisor, a best friend, and my ideal lover. Sometimes I fantasized about our sex life in 18th century Greece and imagined with relish the passion that would erupt if only we could be together again, sharing hungry bodies as well as hungry minds. Unquote. Later, Joe remarks, quote, If Philippa could have assumed a physical body, I'm sure I would have married her. But she was only a voice, a voice that resonated with more love, 
compassion, and perspicacity than any I have ever known. Within the space of a few months, she had demonstrated an acute awareness of my feelings and foibles. She knew the people in my life and their effect upon me, and was even able to relate specific circumstances in which I had found myself, situations unknown to Aviva or anyone who attended what Philippa chose to call our groupings. Unquote. Uh, another quote. Somehow Philippa had to be either living inside me or hovering perpetually close by, picking up via some otherworldly antenna uh, my organism's every twitch and shudder. How else could she read my thoughts and feelings, sit in on my compositions at the computer keyboard, observe my contacts with others, assess my health and nutrition, listen to the jazz and rock and roll that I played on the stereo, noises, she called it, and even hear the tunes I habitually hummed in my head. I can see energies, is how she explained her ability to know me inside out. I can see in your mind. If you make it in your mind, I can see. Joe adds, the guides were doing much to enrich our quality of life, both emotionally and materially. They often displayed the ability to read the state of our physical bodies and prescribe minerals, foods, and medicinal herbs to enhance performance and well-being. Russell would occasionally perform psychometry, that is, while turning over in his, in quotes, hands, a personal item belonging to someone unknown to himself and Aviva, he would give incisive readings to the individual's character and personality. So in other words, the medium would be holding it in, quote, his hands. One of the more convincing guides to speak through Aviva was a discarnate named Ernst, who claimed to have been an RAF pilot during World War II. Specifically, he claimed to be Flying Officer William Alfred Scott of 99 Squadron, Group 3, Bomber Command. He offered up the most specific details, including slang words known only to a subset of World War II RAF pilots. He claimed, for example, that his squadron had to sleep in the grandstand of Newmark, Newmarket Racecourse. Research uncovered a photograph which showed that. In fact, members of this particular squadron did indeed sleep at the grandstand of Newmarket Racecourse. On the other hand, Ernest would sometimes lapse into American diction in pronouncing certain words. Convincing spiritual aspects were interwoven with the extremely specific details. During his few years as a bomber pilot, Ernst said he was convinced he was acting impeccably in fighting what he felt was humanity's last war against, quote, the little clown, unquote, Adolf Hitler. But he told how his return to the between-life state changed his self-assessment, bringing the realization that he had incurred karmic debt with all the victims of his bombing raids, debts that he was now obliged to repay. Quote, now that I'm here, he said ruefully, I can think only of all the deaths in which I played a part. Unquote. This then was the reason for Ernst's overweening sadness and remorse. He was carrying the burden of having been a mass murderer in a worthy cause. The sessions with Aviva took place in her apartment in Toronto, but in February of 1986, Joe missed some sessions to fly to England to research the details of Ernst's case. While Joe was flying across the Atlantic, Ernst was announcing through Aviva in her apartment in Toronto, that he had made the decision to reincarnate and would be leaving them in a few months. Quote, it was said that a fetus had been located in southern England 
a bodily vehicle placed in ideal circumstances to provide Ernst with the opportunity of repaying many of the karmic debts he had incurred. In England, Joe does an ex exhaustive research or search to confirm the identity of the discarnate airman William Alfred Scott, but there is not a trace of him in the records. No birth, death, or military service. He plays tapes of sessions in which Ernst speaks to a couple of aging RAF pilots who had served with the 99 Squadron during World War II. The pilots listened with fascinated recognition, confirming the specific details, slang words, etc. used by Ernst. Two of the RAF pilots even thought they recognized the person on the tapes as Scotty, a Sergeant Malcolm Scott they knew, but no one anywhere had heard of William Alfred Scott. While Joe was in England, he spent a few days visiting with his mother and told her about his frustration with the research. My mother had an answer. It was predictable enough, I suppose, leaping straight out of years of Christian conditioning. Demons, she said, her voice quivering a little. You're talking to demons, and I don't like the sound of it one bit. Meanwhile, back in Toronto, the once genial Ernst becomes hostile and threatening when he learns of Joe's investigation and complains that his privacy is being violated and that he doesn't want living relatives contacted, etc. He admits that Joe may find discrepancies and threatens to withdraw himself and his charge from the sessions if the investigation continues. Sometime later, there is a very emotional session in which Ernst takes his leave because it is time for him to be reincarnated. Joe asks Russell, Viva's guide, for details of Ernst's reincarnation specifics, and the name and date of birth do check out, though the place is about 35 miles off. Joe even contacts the new parents, though understandably they refuse to cooperate with his investigation. Joe furthers his investigation by consulting other mediums who are channeling different guides. One of them is a young woman named Claire, who channels a surgeon from Victorian England named Dr. Pinkerton. Dr. Pinkerton is very charming, and like the other guides, and by the way, this is not a sound studio, you may hear background noises like the racing motorcycle there. Dr. Pinkerton is very charming, and like the other guides, full of the most specific details of his past incarnation. When Joe asks him about his spirit guide, the information provided by Dr. Pinkerton does not match up well with that provided by Philippa. Even more troubling, Dr. Pinkerton seems to encourage Joe to have sex with Claire, and claims that Philippa would approve of this. Here's, a, here's what Dr. Pinkerton says. Philippa's got so much give, he said, and when there's a female vibration that is sincere around you, she trusts that vibration, and she feels the same as if she's touching you, son, especially through a medium. Making love to a medium who pours out love, it is a wonderful, wonderful journey. Unquote. We later learn that Russell tried to manipulate a sexual relationship between Aviva and a member of her group, a married man named Sanford Ellison, who at Russell's direction had become her hypnotist and healer. And again, Russell is, uh, if I'm understanding this right, it's been seven years since I've read it, but Russell is Aviva's guide. So in other words, he's a disincarnate too. And then uh, he 
makes introductions to other disincarnates that she channels, such as the RAF pilot, Ernst. But neither Sanford nor Aviva were interested in such a liaison, and the manipulations led to them breaking off contact. So neither waking personality was interested in this sexual transaction that her guide tried to bring about, much like Dr. Pinkerton tries to uh, create a sexual liaison between Joe Fisher and Claire, who is the channeler of Dr. Pinkerton. One interpretation that occurred to me was that if the guides were a puppet show being created by the unconscious of the mediums, one could see how Claire's unconscious, for example, might want to manipulate a sexual relationship with handsome Joe Fisher. But most of the evidence points to a far more troubling possibility, that it is the disincarnate, discarnate spirits who want to experience sex and or partake of the energy exchanged through their mediums. A peculiar dynamic develops where the guides speaking through one medium begin to warn Joe about the guides speaking through another medium and vice versa. Dr. Pinkerton also warns Joe about going to Greece and tells him that he will find pain and danger there. Joe returns to Europe and investigates the very specific details of Russell's past incarnation. He is shocked and disillusioned to find that, as with Ernst, while many specifics prove valid, his identity, birth, and death, and many other crucial details appear to be lies. Next, he travels to Greece and discovers that his beloved Philippa's details are also a mixture of truth and lies. Particularly disturbing is a shocking anachronism. Philippa's references to Alexandropolis, a place name not coined until long after her last incarnation. The buzzing in his ears, which he had learned to associate with Philippa trying to communicate with him, takes on a furious intensity as he uncovers that his discarnate beloved is also a deceiver. Dr. Pinkerton's warning proves out because Greece becomes a place of extremely painful disillusionment for Joe. Joe returns to Toronto in a state of exasperation, anxiety, and self-loathing. Most of the members of the, of the group surrounding Aviva refuse the evidence that the guides are not who they claim to be. Joe, however, finds himself recovering from the malign influence the guides have had on him. Quote, In the course of several days brooding and reassessment, my prolonged disillusionment was transformed into a reinforced sense of self, a sense of self that I had long ago surrendered, albeit unconsciously, to Philippa, Russell, and the others. Little by little, I reclaimed my personal identity, realizing all the while how much I had lived a shadow life since becoming a member of the group. With developing clarity, I saw how subtly and how stealthily I had become dependent on Philippa, how in questioning my every move and motive, I had deferred again and again to what I believed she had expected of me. The buzzing in my ears, so harsh and abusive in Greece, gradually retreated, and I stoically avoided any contact with Philippa, whoever she was. I was managing to extricate myself from the guide's gentle tyranny." Unquote. Joe summons his will to confront the guides with the findings of his research. Russell, Russell responds with, a de, with defensive denial and many forms of brilliant manipulation. 
Philippa will not come forward to answer the charges. No, Russell was adamant. You've shut her out. You've quite completely shut her out. I don't think she'll, she'd have the energies. She says, if the value of that truth and love that you've had between you is to be undervalued because you cannot find Alexandropolis, what basis is your life being lived on? Is it being lived only on the superficial, I can touch, I can see, I can feel, or is it being lived in your heart where the truth resides? So I guess it's another one of, uh, are you going to trust me or your lying eyes type of thing? But uh, a brilliant type of emotional bullying. And I'm, of course, adding some off-the-cuff off the comments. Even as Joe is now able to see through the manipulation, the brilliance of it is staggering. Uh, this is a, another quote from the book. Philippa's charge, let me tell you one thing. Russell was adopting his professional demeanor. The only way that you can ever go deeper is to go into yourself, not out of yourself. The truth lies within you as the truth lies within all. Why do you think that billions on the earthbound plane still attend church? It's a deep and abiding belief with no proof. Less proof than you have of reincarnation. Less proof than you have of us. You cannot prove the existence of the guides, for we are not here on the earthbound plane. All we can hope to do is to keep you intact until your transition, and in this manner, to impart to you the knowledge we have for your own lives. Unquote. And maybe I shouldn't have said that thing about your lying eyes, because let's leave it open uh, to you, the reader, whether you believe the spirits or believe that they're deceivers. Okay, another quote. I really don't know that any of you really grasp what it is to guide someone. We don't sit here with puppet strings and pull you this way and push you that way. We still have our own forward development to get on with, and we must ensure the safety of our charges to the best of our ability at all times. Do you understand? Unquote. And so this is how Russell refers to the people who are part of this group. He calls them charges, like that they are uh, the mentors of, these, uh, of the people. And uh, so that's what he means by charges. And which is often like a parental thing or like in parental loki or whatever it's called, a locus or something. When, when you are, let's say, in charge of a child because you're a school teacher or a caretaker, but not the parent of one. So it's, it sort of has a parental implication. Uh, and so Russell says, says to Joe, do you understand? And Joe responds, yes, I do, Russell, but I'm forced to step back and I'm forced to think about possible alternatives. Very diplomatic statement from Joe Fisher. Russia, R Russell continues to challenge Joe, who is now the one apostate in a group that consists mostly of true believers. Underneath his metaphysical double talk, Russell is essentially saying, what are you going to believe, your lying eyes or our discarnate voices? Uh, Russell says, so what are your alternatives? I'd like to hear this. Uh, Joe, well that instead of being a real guide, you might be just a part of your charge's subconscious mind, that you might be a past life personality, as you have indicated that the other so-called guides are. And I think about people such as Emanuel Swedenborg, the great Swedish clairvoyant, who warned very specifically about communicating with entities in the next world. 
He warned about the dangers of evil spirits who will use all manner of subtlety, brilliance, and affection to reach you. And Russell responds, to what end? Joe, I don't know, Russell. Russell, you must dig further if you're a true researcher, as you say. To what end would someone give you the information of the type that has been given? To what end would someone open the learning to you that you have been given? To what end? What would that end entail? Joe responds that he doesn't know, and Russell brilliantly presses the, his attack, succeeding at least for other members of the group of getting Joe on the defensive and redefining a situation in which his false identity has been exposed into a lesson an exasperated teacher is trying to offer to an errant and stubborn student. And uh, just recently written, because I'm recording this, uh, by the way, uh, July 31st of 2013, uh, is I recently wrote a card called Reality Definitions, and it's about uh, that whoever is able to define the reality in a situation, that that's a life and death struggle. And here we see it as such, um, because the whole group is listening, and either they're going to buy Joe's reality definition of sudden wariness and skepticism, or Russell is coming forward to insist on his reality definition, and that Joe is sort of a, um, an emotionally petulant, doubting child, you know, childish person in his charge, and he's trying to get him back, putting things in perspective. So these are incompatible reality definitions that are <clears throat> battling themselves out in this dialogue with a discarnate spirit, apparently. <clears throat> so again, Russell ends with, to what end? What would that end entail? And Joe responds that he doesn't know, and Russell brilliantly presses his attack Oh, by the way, Reality Definitions is a podcast. You can listen to that uh, alongside this if you want. Russell brilliantly presses his attack, succeeding at least for other members of the group of getting Joe on the defensive and redefining a situation in which his false identity has been exposed into a lesson an exasperated teacher is trying to offer to an errant and stubborn student. Because remember, Joe has just presented all this material disconfirming stuff that Russell said. Russell, you unfortunately cannot do this outside the earthbound framework. Now, when you say this man, Emanuel, what? Swedenborg. Swedenborg, what was he warning against? He was warning about evil spirits. Lower astral individuals, Russell responds. Joe, he would warn about the influence of evil spirits who only wanted your downfall. They spoke about love and they spoke about goodness. And they ostensibly wanted the best for you, but really they didn't. Russell, but how could you be downfalled if you are free to choose, free to challenge? Joe, well, we are free to choose, but of course the guides have influenced everybody in this group. The guides have exerted influence to a great degree. You know that. Russell, we work only with our charges. Russell's last comment should be, self-evident falsehood to anyone in the group uh, still capable of critical thinking. Joe is Philippa's charge, and Russell's charge is Aviva, but right now Russell is working Joe very much indeed. Joe responds, But having been here week after week talking to everybody, you well know the influence that you have over people. Russell, We give you information. I do not think we give you influence whatsoever. 
If you choose to allow it to influence your behavior, that is your choice. We do not offer anything that is not asked for. Unquote. Joe, but inasmuch as you say you are our guides and you want the best for us and you're working with us to help us do better for forward development, if we accept what you are saying, then of course you're going to influence us. Russell, I have told you all along not to accept and I don't have to justify my existence against your existence. Unquote. And it goes on. A spellbinding wrestling match between a paranormal investigator and a false idol refusing to be cast down. Russell, with the rhetorical skill of a cornered Saruman, wriggles out of the grasp of reason like a slippery eel, and although Joe continues to confront, members of the group intervene, coming to Russell's defense. So this is somebody else in the group. You said to me a long time ago, research your research. I have researched my research and I have not found anybody. Well, I guess this is Joe. That was Joe speaking. Um, and then, and then this must be Russell. You have not found concrete earthbound evidence, but if I were to meet you, Philippe's charge at your transition, would that convince you? Well, I would love you to meet me, Russell, and I hope you do. Well, I can't because I'm not your guide, replies Russell. Helen spoke up once more in Russell's defense. Joe, if Sonji's charge here gave me the address to her house, and I drove into that particular part of the city and couldn't find her house, can I blame her for my inability to find the house? Of course, the, uh, you can see the breakdown in reality testing, because uh, if somebody gives you the wrong address, of course you're not going to find the house. Helen joins Russell in blaming Joe for all the disconfirmations he has uncovered of Russell's past incarnation, and she uses all sorts of absurd chop logic to defend her absolute faith in the guides. Listen, Joe, urged Helen, slapping her hand against the carpet on which she was sitting. You know this is a floor. You've stepped on this, and you know it's a floor. You've proved it to yourself. Once you've proved something to yourself, how can you go back and say it isn't so? And then Russell adds, He's come to his own conclusions, Mi Lao's charge. Russell skillfully deflects Joe's continuing challenges and takes back control over the session, moving on to a long lecture on the nature of karma. Afterwards, Joe again tries to confront Russell, and again he skillfully reframes the challenge as Joe's lapse, accusing him of excavating trivia that is only serving to distract the guides from working with their charges. Russell adds, I don't want to seem harsh because you and I have been very good friends. Joe, we have. Russell, and I don't see that that should change. I'm simply saying, there are other ways to look. Yours is not the only way. The information that was given to you is there. If it were not there, we would have said so. Joe responds, For my part, I will endeavor to remain open-minded. I've been totally honest with you today, as I've had to be. Of course you have. Russell agreed magnanimously. How else does one engender respect unless one is honest? If you lie, deceive, and cheat, there is absolutely no respect, and therefore no confidence. But you also have to respect us. Wow, that's a double-sided message. <laughs> um, I've given some large samples of this particular dialogue to give an idea of how brilliantly manipulative these guides are. There is much more fascinating dialogue in the book 
based on transcripts of taped sessions, and most of it is far more convincing, as the guides are usually not being confronted with discrepancies, but are providing all sorts of specific information, much of which proves out, and this is interspersed with intriguing metaphysical philosophy. Joe appears to be the only one in the group to notice how ingeniously Russell is manipulating them. So it's sort of like he's pulling back the curtain and sees the Wizard of Oz, but they're still uh, the, the man behind the curtain, but the others are, not, are still looking at the screen. Although Fisher never suggests the possibility, which suggests a continuing level of successful manipulation, I got the distinct impression that Aviva was channeling a single shape-shifting entity who, like the devil, hath power to assume a pleasing shape and was capable of performing a whole cast of characters of both genders. One has to wonder if part of Joe's psyche was not still under the influence of perceiving Philippa as a separate entity that he does not discuss what seems an obvious possibility. And I don't know if that possibility is, is true or not, uh, but I, that's what I wrote at the time. And it, it's certainly one to think about. Another very strange aspect of the entities is that they leave blinds or discrepancies that an astute observer is bound to uncover. Fisher wonders why the entities, who are able to command such specific knowledge of various times and places of the past, don't pick actual names of people from those past times and places, which would make the debunking of their claims much more difficult or impossible. He asks the question, but doesn't speculate about why. This is pure speculation, of course, but I can think of several possibilities. The first possibility to consider, though, I think the evidence leans away from it, is that the psyche of the medium is the source of the information. And this would sometimes be called like the super ESP hypothesis, that uh, a person who seems to be a medium, uh, and uh, John Klimo has written about this, uh, is actually accessing, there's a different paranormal explanation, they're accessing super ESP and accessing the Akashic records and, and this kind of thing. There is a phenomenon called cryptoamnesia where a person displays arcane knowledge unknown to their waking personality, but which research uncovers was once exposed to them as a child, etc. This seems quite likely, as does the possibility of conscious fraud by the mediums, as the voluminous details of multiple past timelines, um, quite unlikely, sorry, as does the possibility of conscious fraud by the mediums, as the voluminous details of multiple past timelines would require the most difficult research, finding information in a pre-internet era that could only be found in particular archives in other countries thousands of miles away. A paranormal variation on this possibility would involve an unconsciously psychic medium whose unconscious psyche accesses arcane but error-ridden information out of the collective unconscious slash Akashic record and uses it to generate multiple personalities in the trance state. Another possibility um, is that the entities have the ability to access information about prior timelines, but the process is imperfect. Perhaps they're able to read living minds which provide them information, but some of the information they read is erroneous. Perhaps the entities are neurotic and unconsciously go over their over the top in their deceptions, as many human pathological liars do, and end up tripping themselves up. Uh, well, for example, um, 
psychopaths in my study of psychopaths we learned that they enjoy lying it's not stressful in fact they may lie when they don't need to because they enjoy it so much or maybe part of their sport is to see how successfully they can manipulate people so that even when they include errors they're still able to pull the puppet strings or maybe they enjoy the terror and painful disillusion that will happen to some who uncover the errors the problem is that once paranormal possibilities are allowed and I think they have to be allowed they inevitably tend to exponentiate because we now have to consider so many novel causal vectors that fundamentalists, materialists can conveniently discard. Unfortunately, and of course, um, they're, they're, the correct answer isn't necessarily any one of them. It may be all of the above because there may be various entities and various different things are happening at different moments. There's a high variability. So uh, we should also avoid the uh, single correct diagnosis uh, fallacy, as I call it. Unfortunately, a classic flaw I notice again and again in paranormal research is that the research will tend to assume if there is an anomaly, only a particular paranormal cause vector must be responsible. For example, EVP, electronic voice phenomenon researchers, assume that if they capture an anomalous voice on their recorder while walking through a cemetery, for example, that the source uh, must be a ghost of some sort. Uh, they never, as far as I can tell, <clears throat> Um, after listening to many, many hours of various EVP researchers discussing their work, consider that there could be a paranormal ventriloquism at work, and that their own unconscious psyches could be the source of the recorded voices. A couple of EVPs I've heard strongly point toward that possibility. Another common presumption is that even if multiple paranormal causal vectors are considered, that there must be only one true one to be discovered. But there could be multiple causalities, so, so that some EVPs may be paranormal ventriloquisms, while others may derive from entities or other exotic causes. Some UFOs may be exteriorizations of the collective unconscious, as Jung speculated, while others may be entities and shape-shifting energy bodies, while maybe still another group are material crafts containing actual extraterrestrials. It is a frustrating but very real problem in paranormal research that it is hard to falsify or eliminate competing paranormal vectors of causality. My approach to paranormal investigation is to withhold from the premature closure onto too definite and exclusive a theory, because once you invest in a particular theory, you burden your observational powers with an enormous a priori constraint and inevitably tend to corral evidence to support your pet theory. This is sometimes called the confirmation bias. And the original skeptics, the Greek philosophers, this was sort of their philosophy. They felt their observational powers were improved by not arriving at conclusions. Uh, unlike the skeptic movement that begins with conclusions that paranormal things are not true, and then uh, as true believers seeks out to knock down evidence. So it's the exact opposite of skepticism. Organizations like PSYCOP and people like James Randi and Michael Shermer and, and so forth but I've written about that elsewhere. The mind and the ego hate ambivalence and ambiguity and would understandably love to settle on one definite explanation, but this tendency creates gigantic distortions in both normal and paranormal research. Fundamentalist materialist scientism eliminates the paranormal as even a possibility, but with similar habits of mind, many paranormal investigators reach premature closure onto only one paranormal possibility, 
and then become true believers and self-righteous proselytizers of this particular theory. Um, <clears throat> see that a lot in ufology, for example. I am not accusing Joe Fisher of this tendency because he is such an exemplary researcher and so inevitably led toward viewing the guides as, as malign and deceiving entities by his actual experience. <clears throat> While being very open-minded and, and taking a very generous view of them uh, at the beginning. So there's a real change of position there. Many of the additional possibilities I'm suggesting may have occurred to him, and he may have chosen not to write about them because they are so speculative, or because they could help people rationalize participation with the phenomenon, which he discovered to be extremely dangerous. Continuing to speculate, perhaps the entities are compelled by inner or outer causes to include erroneous information so as not to overwhelm the free will of the human participants with revelations that are 100% verifiable. This could be explained as the mythic scenario of a demon under some sort of divine constraint to leave a calling card for the astute adept that shows that they are a diabolical agent. Alternatively, we have the classic device of the alchemists and great hermetic teachers of leaving blinds, intentional errors to sidetrack the unworthy and challenge the worthy initiates to validate things for themselves. Discussing this case with uh, my friend Rob Brezhny, uh, see uh, his site, freewillastrology.com. He pointed out that in the Tarot, the devil card is actually the archangel Uriel in disguise, a benevolent teacher who uses deception to teach us difficult lessons about not relying too much on external guides, for example. Some of these exotic possibilities came to mind after Joe's confrontation with the Russell entity. After the session, Joe felt the stirrings of a vague memory of an earlier session in which Russell had commented at length about manipulation. In an earlier session, Russell had asserted that Sanford Ellison was being severely yet subtly manipulated by his wife, Betty. And you remember that Russell was trying to get Ellison to sleep with the medium. Um, I think her name, uh, I'm not sure if it was Claire or the other female name, but um, as he reviews the transcript of this session, Joe feels like Russell might as well have been on his knees in a confessional. Here is Russell, perhaps brilliantly articulating his own path of manipulation while nominally discussing Betty and Sanford. So this is Russell speaking. Manipulation means overwhelming another with your energies. To do that, you have to, you have contempt for that person. You have disdain for yourself. You have no self-love and therefore cannot love another human. There is genuine desire to control, genuine desire to overwhelm, and to have the manipulatee take on your energies to form in essence almost another little you. If you close the door to love and open the door to control, you are a manipulator. If you close the door to self-esteem and self-love, you open the door to being manipulated. How manipulators do it is by altering their own core energies to fit, as much as a key would fit into a lock, the energies of the person they want to manipulate. As that fit takes place, they draw the energies of the other person to them. Very slowly and carefully, they work on those energies and then project them back once they have been worked on and brought into the same type of energy pattern that they themselves have. 
Once that key is fitted into the lock, it is very easy to turn it at any time. And if the other person is not cooperating in being manipulated, then they simply turn it a little more until they do. The manipulator simply supplants his own energies within the victim who begins to think, act, and function very much in the mode of the person who is manipulating. However, the manipulator will often appear to be compliant, which gives the manipulatee the illusion of having some control. Manipulation is subtle and is, at first, very rarely picked up on by the person being manipulated. Often it takes some event to show the victim that he or she is being manipulated. And even then the control can be very difficult to break, and it can be very painful if it has been going on for a long time. Manipulators tend either to embellish or lie outright when challenged. Even if caught with their hand taking the bread, they will somehow explain it away in falling back on the skills from which they first learned to manipulate, that is, lying. They have a variety of tricks in their bag that they will pull out to use as weapons for control, and they will rotate those weapons as needed. You will often find that manipulators are most vehemently defended. A manipulator has staunch allies who are unwilling to believe that this dear sweet person is using them. So this is amazing because it's just what happened later uh, when he confronted the other people in the group with the, the research. And it's also a brilliant description of how psychopaths work. And because psychopaths are emotionally vacuous, it makes them better able to, in some ways, read other people's emotions because they don't have their own occupying that space. And they can form themselves into, you know, be a devil that hath the power to assume a pleasing form to gain influence over someone. This analysis of manipulation is not only incredibly perceptive, this is me uh, writing now, uh, it is, that uh, should be obvious I guess, it is also prescient as it precedes the confrontation where staunch allies like Rachel come forward to defend Russell from Joe's do- disconfirming research. The method of manipulation described by Russell had an eerie resonance for me because in my fantasy epic Parallel Journeys there is an evil entity called the Demi-Wraith or Violetta that uses precisely the same methods. Following the confrontation with Russell, Joe um, looks up Sanford Ellison, the man whom Russell claims was being manipulated um, Sorry. Uh, following the confrontation with Russell, uh, Joe looks up Sanford Ellison, the man who Russell claims was being manipulated by his wife, Betty. Sanford left the group some months before and told Joe to contact him if he ever wanted to hear about the other side of the guides. The guides had directed Sanford to become Aviva's hypnotist and healer. Aviva, the medium, was suffering with leukemia, and the guides did display an acute awareness of the vicissitudes of her health. They used, but of course they're possessing her body, so it would seem. They used Sanford to deliver what appeared to be efficacious energetic healings. But of course they're also getting to feed on that energy too. Um, I'm intruding some editorial remarks, but I guess that's inevitable. Uh, Quote, there was no question in Sanford's mind that he was channeling life-saving energies to Aviva's entranced form. He was impressed by the guide's obvious knowledge of her physical condition and his fingers would register varying degrees of, of heat or coolness 
according to the various types of energy, um, he was <clears throat> um, he was told Takutu was transmitting through his hands to different parts of Aviva's body. Sanford's unorthodox attentions appeared to be making inroads as Aviva discovered that, despite occasional flare-ups, she had progressively less need of conventional treatment and medication. But if Aviva was showing signs of winning her battle against leukemia, Sanford found that the act of channeling energies left him feeling extraordinarily depleted and ill at ease. It was as if my mind and my emotions had been totally scrambled, he said. The guides also conducted a systematic campaign to undermine his marriage with Betty. Um, this, these are quotes from Stan Sanford. Just a quotation mark here. Um, <clears throat> Slowly and stealthily, the guides talked Sanford into believing that Betty was cruelly yet subtly manipulating him. He was told that he was being overwhelmed by the energies of other, others and that Betty, especially, was smothering his energies with her own and manipulating him according to her wishes. It's a classic shadow projection because obviously this is what they were doing in a misdirection, of course. It was little wonder that Sanford bore scant... Quoting again from the book, it was little wonder that Sanford bore scant resemblance to his former self. He was sinking into a deep depression. The worse he felt, the more pressure the guides exerted. They kept telling me stories about Betty, Sanford continued. So they sort of open a wound and now they're probing into it, it looks like. They said that she was having affairs with lots of different men. They said she was a pathological liar. They said that she was trying to kill me by projecting powerful energies my way. Everything that looked like they're doing, in other words. They even warned on three separate occasions that I would die unless I left her. Each ultimatum was different. They put limits of six months, nine months, and three years in my life if I chose to stay with Betty." Unquote. Simultaneously, the guides gently suggested that Sanford and Aviva had close reincarnation ties, had been drawn to one another by their shared karma, and were meant to be together. Um, quoting from the book, Takuta was trying to convince me, said Sanford, that if I wasn't working with Aviva continuously, we would, um, <clears throat> we would both come to an untimely end. And Russell kept, kept telling me that Aviva and I had to express our love for one another and that she could take care of my physical needs. But the only feelings I had for her were of duty and responsibility. That's how I got sucked in, by being told that she was going to die and that I was the only one who could help her. God, what an ingenious strategy, using his own moral instinct toward his own self-destruction. Tapes at Sanford, and you know, I have to say, like one thing about um, channeled material, and maybe I get into this in here somewhere, and I recommend the John Klimo book on channeling. It really is the one authoritative book on the subject. But he's more sympathetic uh, to the phenomenon in some ways than I am. But mostly when I read what's supposed to be the most exalted channeled material, it seems like a lot of spiritual platitudes. It uh, like seems like a rehash of stuff you could read elsewhere. People with poor reality testing will be like, wow, this agrees with so much other stuff of like, you know, I've read or... Well, yeah, of course it does. They've probably read the same things. I mean, so what? Um, but here you're seeing, it's sort of like actually seeing a wizard at work. Like their manipulation is so brilliant that like there really is psychological material there 
that's, uh, I have never read so brilliantly described like what Russell said about how the manipulator works was just like, whoa, this is, you know, if there was more channeled material like this, I would get pulled into it because it's, uh, uh, it is so intriguing and insightful. And whereas with, uh, most channeled material, and maybe I get into this later in the paper, I haven't looked at it in many years, but, uh, uh, like the one that, that impressed me the most was, um, it was called something like Death, the Great Adventurer. It was by, uh, oh, I can't think of her name right now, but she was uh, Madame Blavatsky's uh, personal secretary. And, uh, and this material seemed very, very profound. But then it was pulling me in, and then, and this is like probably from the 1920s, let's say, or something, and uh, the entities that are being channeled say, and, you know, in this century, uh, there is going to be tremendous new discoveries in the field of radio science and 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 and, and suddenly like you you the gig the cosmic giggle occurs and you sort of realize you've been had because of course to this woman in the 1920s radio science was like the cutting edge horizon of science but of course those of us who can now look back on the 20th century realize like how about nuclear energy how about computers like Radio science wasn't really the uh, cutting edge after a certain point. Okay. So what they can seem like they're coming from a, a transcending time, but then they'll say something or, or use an expression of speech that shows them totally caught in the present zeitgeist, this kind of thing. Anyway, so that was a long, off-the-cuff editorializing. Um, let's go back to the paper. Tapes at Sanford made of private sessions with the guides reveal the heavily persuasive tactics that Russell employed in a concerted effort to bring Sanford and Aviva closer together both physically and emotionally. Maintaining that they were making a lifetime commitment to one another, Russell urged, Speak of your feelings with her, and make her speak of hers with you. Sit together, look at each other, touch each other, and talk of them. It is very difficult to be honest where there are the slightest barriers between you, you have no barriers now except the barrier of distance, the barrier that neither of you has trusted another person to this extent in your entire earthbound lives. We are asking you to meet. Look, mix your energies together by touching so that you are trusted by one another. When one wishes to communicate depth and understanding, that person is close to you and looks at you and touches you. Is that not so? Yes, Sanford acknowledged. Do it. Russell commanded. Although the work with the guides is in real life causing both Sanford's marriage and his business to unravel, his guide, Tsukutsu, makes the claim to Sanford, without any guidance you would have lost your business, you would have lost your own family, you would have completely lost it all, and many other things of a negative nature would have happened to you. Unquote. Takutsu's counsel is that Sanford should leave his wife, Betty, though this is framed as if there is much sympathy for Betty in the proposed desertion. It is very difficult for her, Betty, to come to the realization that she must let go of you, that you have passed way beyond the soul planes which she inhabits. This is not reason enough for her to wish to undergo a transformation. She just wants to stay with you, but one must move on to the areas where one is capable of functioning as an entity. 
it will not be uncommon for her to begin to cling very hard and very tenaciously. As Sanford's uh, desperation grew, I forgot to put that in quotes. <clears throat> As Sanford's desperation grew, the guides introduced new hope of salvation to their foundering victim. Sukutsu told Sanford that his problems were compounded because his emotional centers were shut down. With the guide's help, they could be opened in the cause of his well-being. Quote, wherever I could feel heat under my skin, unquote, said Sanford. Quote, the guide said that an emotional center was not open, that it was not functioning properly. Once I felt 30 or 40 of these hot spots, like hot walnuts all over my body, unquote. So it was in private sessions that Russell and Takutsu proceeded to help Sanford by prying open these emotional centers, alternately counseling him and feeding him with energies channeled through Aviva's entranced bodies. Quote, Takutsu got quite vicious at times. He would tell me that I was useless, that I couldn't make decisions, that I didn't stick up for myself, and so forth. These derogatory remarks were made so that I would express anger, so that my anger center would be opened up. I was battered so hard that I didn't know what was going on, but it was said to be all for my own good. They were supposedly breaking down my resistance to emotions held in the body. Much of the time I felt intensely hot all over the abdomen and groin area, and whenever a center opened, I felt a great rush of hot wind within, a blast of warm energy. When this happened, I would feel very calm, confident, and in control. My insight was enhanced. I'd fly high, but then I'd come crashing down again. The more my centers were supposedly opening, the worse I felt, in spite of the periodic highs. I was feeling things I didn't realize could be experienced with such intensity. The emotional swings were phenomenal. At times, I would be totally broken down. I underwent raging storms of emotion, nostalgia, crying fits, great highs, depressive lows. One session lasted 14 hours. I took Aviva in and out of trance so that I could stay as close as possible to the guides throughout that time. I see now that they were brainwashing me. It was magnificently done. They would scramble my thinking and feeling processes so that I wasn't able to function properly. And then they would be the ones to make me feel better. It's like good cop, get bad cop, I guess. Practically every day I would get what you might call a maintenance shot, which would make me feel better for a while. They turned me into a psychic drug addict. The guides were out to create enormous dependency and they succeeded. Early in March, uh, that's an unquote from Sanford's um, testimony to Joe. Early in March 1987, Sanford's enfeebled resistance could hold out no longer, and he capitulated to the voice's demands. He packed his bags and left home. It was the worst point of my life, he said. I was feeling god-awful about everything. My whole life was a mess. The testimony of Sanford and the transcripts of his private sessions may be enough to take the many possible motivations for the guide and focus in on the mind-parasite hypothesis as the most likely. Sanford provides clear evidence of a highly sophisticated energy parasitism occurring. Classically, the entities seek to promote lower energies such as anger, which give them the grosser type of energy they prefer. Like a crack addict or a sex addict, 
Sanford feels a pleasurable rush when, his, when the energy is discharged. <clears throat> uh, quote, These derogatory remarks are made so that I would express anger, so that my anger center would be opened up. Much of the time I felt intensely hot all over the abdomen and groin area, and whenever a center opened, I felt a great rush of hot wind within, a blast of warm energy. Unquote. About two weeks ago, on my last night of reading the book, I was dreaming about a big dog that was starting to maul me. Some sort of lucidity clicked on in the dream as I realized that since in real life I was severely mauled by a dog when I was 10 years old, and this was caused by a parapsychological attack, a very long story, but it's actually described in one of my online documents, probably the next podcast, uh, which is called... Um, a mutant convergence, how Jonathan Zapp, um, how, ter- or sorry, how John Major Jenkins, Terrence McKenna, and Jonathan Zapp met in a weekend of high strangeness in 1996. So you could look for that story there. <clears throat> it seemed like um, <clears throat> something was using that association to arouse fear in me, and I forced myself awake. This felt like an immunological alert happening via some self-preservation function that wanted me awake. Suddenly, wide awake, I felt energy pouring out of my body from a circular area exactly at the solar plexus, which seemed molten and electrical. The area had an approximate diameter of three and a half inches or eight centimeters. In my mind's eye, I pictured it as looking like the lit end of a cigarette. The feeling of acute energy drain was very similar, if not as extreme, as the encounter with a human vampire, which I described in Mind Parasites, Energy, Parasites, and Vampires, which is a document and a podcast, and during which I was similarly awakened with an urgent immunological alert sensation. This is why I said at the beginning of this document that there is both danger in being oblivious to such entities, but also in casting awareness in their direction. Of course, anyone can speculate that my dream was seeded by what I was reading before I slept and so forth, and there is no way for me to verify the source of the perceived attack. Also extremely interesting in Sanford's testimony is that the guides use the classic demonic strategies of accusing others of exactly what they were doing. Betty is accused of energy draining manipulation, reversing the truth 180 degrees. Without us, your business and life would have failed. But they were failing because of them, of course, and employing the truth in a way that twists at 180 degrees, accusing Sanford of not sticking up for himself. Similar strategies are classically employed by abusive lovers who typically drain someone's finances and energy while portraying themselves as their meal ticket and healer slash savior. Skillfully, they create a dependence on their parasitism. A key part of their strategy is to keep the victim in a state of extreme emotional instability. Last year, a mind parasite experiencer contacted me by email and suggested an interesting name for the parasites the Emotioneers. He said he derived the name from Disney from the Mouseketeers because he wanted to indicate their skill in manufacturing a fantasy world that sucks you in to manipulate your emotions. Great invention of a term. Shortly after Sanford leaves his wife, he has an argument with Aviva who storms out of his office. She had been working for him, vowing never to return. I guess he got her a job as like his receptionist or something like that after the they started working in the group. Aviva keeps her vow and thereby severs Sanford's contact with the guides who spoke through her. 
In the absence of any contact with the guides, Zenfra made a startling discovery. He began to feel better, a lot better. Days passed and the fierce emotional fluctuations and bouts of muddled thinking steadily ebbed away. He came to believe that the prolonged proximity uh, to their communicating vehicle and his willingness to channel healing energies had left him vulnerable to disincarnate designs about which he could only wonder. A few weeks later, Sanford got a call from Roger, who had been reinstated as Aviva's hypnotist. Russell, speaking through Aviva, had insisted that Roger dial Sanford and hold the phone to Aviva's lips. It's a rather bizarre situation, but... So I'll just repeat that sentence because it's a lot to follow. Russell, speaking through Aviva, it's Aviva's guide, another discarnate spirit, had insisted that Roger, another member of the group, I guess, dial Sanford and hold the phone to Aviva's lips so that he could deliver a, mus a message directly to Sanford over the phone. Russell barked into the invasive instrument, as he called it, that his charge's leukemia was running rampant and that the rift between Sanford and Aviva must be healed. Sanford was unbending in his determination to have nothing further to do with the guides, and once this was communicated, Russell resorted to intimidation of the most blatant and desperate kind. Russell told me, said Sanford, that he had just been handed the next installment of my life, and that if I didn't tell Aviva how important she was in my life, she would die there without my healing. He also said that in Aviva's absence, I wouldn't be able to keep my energies balanced through contact with the guides, and that my business would collapse. Finally, he told me that I would commit suicide in a fit of depression. Whoa. Russell's threats were transparently bullying and inaccurate. This is from re reading from the book, but we're no longer directly from Sanford. Russell's threats were transparently bullying and inaccurate as Aviva went into remission and Sanford's business recovered and his life improved generally. Sanford even credits the trial um, of involvement with the guides as crucial to the rescue of his marriage. Quote, from Sanford. It was as if we shoved our hands into fire, said Sanford. Without knowing it, we found ourselves participating in an exercise of the most frightful self-confrontation. In some perverse ways, the guides were our teachers. Without their intervention, Betty and I would probably still be locked in the same desperate nothingness that our marriage used to be. Unquote. Sanford also realizes deception about the need for the supposed healing sessions. Quote, in retrospect, it doesn't make any sense that I was needed to channel healing energies in the first place. The guide said that the healing was affected via the fourth level of Aviva's mind, and when I asked why they could not channel energies directly, Russell never gave me a straight answer. I think the guides always tried to give us the impression that they knew more than they did. They would tell us one thing that was accurate, and then we would assume that everything they said was right. And that, um, by the way, is a, a classic strategy of psychopaths, is that uh, they will throw in, and I talk about this in my, it's also a podcast called Foxes and Reptiles, Psychopathy and the Financial Meltdown, um, that one of the common lying strategies of psychopaths is that they will throw in truth, even a truth that makes them look bad. So, well, the truth is I didn't, I uh, wasn't with her because I'd gotten caught pickpocketing or something, they'll admit something like that, in order to, that then completely convinces people of their honesty because they admitted something unflattering. But then that becomes the way of uh, achieving gullibility about far more 
powerful lives um, by giving a little bit of uh, truth. And that, so that's a famous devil strategy, the half-truth thing and so forth, and truth mixed in with lies. Sanford concludes, Who or what are these beings? Sanford asked rhetorically. It's very difficult to say. I do know they were right inside of Eva from the way her facial expression would change. They would even laugh through her. I tend to feel that they are lower astral entities who play on human frailty and feed on our energy and emotions. They often dazzled with their contempt for us. I still believe they helped to keep Aviva alive. They needed her alive. Our communication allowed some light to shine into the darkness of where they are, and wherever that is must be god-awful in the extreme. So it's kind of interesting that Aviva, I don't know if I thought about this before, had leukemia, so maybe by her being closer to death, that allowed her to be more of a portal uh, from the lower astral. One could speculate. Joe next goes to talk to Dr. Pinkerton, the guide channeled by Claire, who had warned him about the guides being channeled by Aviva. Dr. Pinkerton responds, You want me to be honest with you, son? And this is another like, classic setup for being deceived. And Joe responds, Perfectly. I don't know how you're going to take this, but do you know the difference between earthbound spirits and real guides? Later Joe inquires, uh, so these earthbound spirits, I persisted, are the dead who have led rather unsavory lives and are hanging around and, yes, declared Dr. Pinkerton loudly, these lost souls, he uttered the phrase with an attenuated cry of pain, these low entities, they come in with great knowledge, they come in with love, they want you to believe in them, they are quite clever. They say that they do not control your will. Oh, no, no, no. They have a very lovely, sweet way to control you completely. Do you understand me? Joe, but what, what is to tell that you, Dr. Pinkerton, that I am not of the same? I shall tell you why, son. For many years, I have been bouncing in and out of my instrument, controlling organs, blood pressure, heartbeat, and so on and so forth. Nothing bad has ever happened to her. She has never been possessed. I do not allow any lower entities around my instrument. But Aviva, she must stop at once. Someone that comes through her shall remain there, and we shall have to do an exorcism on this young lady. Unquote. Dr. Pinkerton adds, I am not lying to you, Joseph. You see, these protestations of honesty are troubling, of course. I'm not lying to you, Joseph. I have no reason to lie to you. Do you understand me? I've never lied to you. Later, Dr. Pinkerton remarks, The so-called master, Russell, is a serpent. He sweet-talks everyone, dear, but the good always wins. So Joe asks, So what are they gaining by this deception? And Dr. Pinkerton replies, Controlling, my dear, replied Dr. P. Controlling, controlling. On the earth plane, a lot of human beings like to control others. What makes you think it is different on the other side, son? But the buzzing in my ears, I asked him, what is that? That's her. Joe, that's my real guide? Dr. Pinkerton, mm-hmm. She's been protecting you all the time. She does love you very much, dear. Repeatedly, Dr. Pinkerton warns Joe about Aviva's guides. Uh, quote, they are brilliant, Joseph. They are brilliant. You have no idea. These souls cannot cross over into the light. 
but they do have a lot of knowledge, unquote. Uh, Joe, how are they able to read one's thoughts? Dr. Pinkerton, they're around you. I've told you before, they're around you always. There's a constant fight here. We don't want to get too close to them, you know. We'll get caught. So he sort of seems to admit that they're in the same place. There's a constant fight here. And Joe asks, how? Dr. Pinkerton, they're quite powerful, these souls. We are protecting my instrument. We are protecting you. We are protecting a lot of souls. We're trying to make sure they stay away. You see what these souls need. They need to be rescued, you know. Joe investigates Dr. Pinkerton's past life background and inevitably discovers that it is yet another case of deception. Joe confronts Dr. Pinkerton with the disconfirmation. Uh, this is quoting from the book. Harboring incipient anger and distrust, I confronted Dr. Pinkerton in the gloom of his consulting room. To start with, he behaved as though he hadn't heard my declaration that the records bore no listing for a Dr. George Albert Pinkerton. What do you want to know about George, he demanded unsteadily. Where can I find him? Why isn't he in the medical directory? Just a moment. Yes. Uh, yes, Nathaniel. Yes. That is our friend, Joseph. It's good to see his light, isn't it? Also, your guide is here, Joseph. The carrot was no longer, and this is Joe realizing he's being misdirected. Uh, and Joe writes, uh, this, the carrot was no longer enticing the donkey. Dr. Pinkerton was employing his trusty tactics of distraction, but I was not about to be swayed by yet another mention of my guide. I was thoroughly fed up with my compliance, with my tolerance, with my willingness to grant the benefit of the doubt to the utterances of one unfathomable voice after another. For years I had encountered nothing but deceit and manipulation, wrapped in the spirit's flattery, high-mindedness, and exhortations of love and affection." Unquote. Joe is aware of another case of a channeled guide claiming to be a doctor, Dr. George Jameson, supposed to have been a bone setter from Boston. His case is investigated and also disconfirmed. And Joe notes, I was intrigued that both Pinkerton and Jameson, whoever they were, had chosen to be known as doctors. It seemed to be a favorite ploy amongst disincarnate communicators. Doctors abound among the legions of entities channeled from coast to coast, and they um, recur constantly in the history of spiritualism. One can only assume that the prefix is adopted because of its power to generate instant deference and respect. Probably great insight. In his book, The Wanderings of a Spiritualist, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle tells of attending a seance in Australia led by medium Charles Bailey. And it was, I think it was Alice Bailey, by the way, was the, the one who's channeled material. She's the one who wrote about the radio science. Um, anyway, I'll restart that sentence. Sorry for the sidetrack there. In his book, The Wanderings of a Spiritualist, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, yeah, the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes, tells of attending a seance in Australia led by medium Charles Bailey, whose spirit controls were both self-styled doctors. Sir Arthur wrote glowingly of the communicator's dignity and wisdom. Um, but we also saw many cases of where Arthur Conan Doyle, unlike Sherlock Holmes, was extremely gullible. The famous incident with the girls taking pictures of fairies and so forth that were pretty obviously cardboard cutouts. Likewise, the great American psychologist William James was mightily impressed with a French doctor named 
uh, Finuit, who spoke gruffly through the voice box of renowned medium Lenora Piper. Joe concludes, quote, Unfortunately, mediumship is inclined to attract dark and tricky intelligences rather than act as focal point, um, as a, as a focal point uh, for the genuine and well-intentioned. It was always thus. As long ago as 1869, Andrew Jackson Davis wrote in Spirit Mysteries, quote, It is no difficult thing for certain spirits to impersonate others, to talk and dress up their thoughts like others, which they will do if such resemblance adds anything important to their communications, unquote. Joe, who was ruminating on Dr. Pinkerton's fall from grace, unquote, um, opens a Chinese fortune cookie after a meal in Toronto's Chinatown and reads, quote, never be divided from the truth by what you would like to believe, unquote. What a profound Chinese fortune cookie message that if only more people would take that one on. Never be divided from the truth by what you would like to believe. Joe contemplates which possibilities about the spirit guides are still viable after all these findings. Quote, multiple personalities can also be dismissed from contention because most, multiple personalities always claim the same lifespan as the host individual. Past life personalities, too, can be disregarded because if genuine, relatively recent life histories would tend them, lend themselves to verification in historical records, and this was not the case. Unconscious fraud is not so easily repudiated, however. The mind, as Addicts Huxley observed, is like the earth of 150 years ago with its darkest Africas and Amazonian basins concealing unknown capabilities and potentials. Is the mind, then, somehow able to construct a fictional family of personalities each with its own reincarnation life history? Possibly. Dr. Adam Crabtree, author of Multiple Man, and one of the world's foremost authorities on multiple personality and possession, pointed out that thoughts in the unconscious tend to group together. These groups easily become personified. Uh, this is what Jungians might call an autonomous, uh, an autonomous complex. I don't believe, Crabtree told me, that the process of channeling is purely self-delusion or purely the individual's unconscious or purely what the entity, so-called, would have us believe. I tend to go along with the notion that discarnate entities are in many cases responsible, but that they are not who they say they are, although they are able to gain information in a paranormal fashion. And that was uh, Joe Fisher quoting this guy Crabtree. And now this is Joe Fisher continuing. Carl Jung also agonized over the meaning of mediumship and while stressing the importance of being skeptical in each individual case, came to the conclusion that, quote, the spirit hypothesis yields better results in practice than any other, unquote. And that was one of Jung's uh, first works, by the way, was a, um, a, a study of the occult. This is still while he was under working with Freud, um, but it, uh, and a young woman who was supposed to be a medium, he neglected to admit that it was his young cousin and that she was infatuated with him and many other details. There's a, a lot of Victorian unreliability about the whole episode, but um, this was Jung very much at the beginning of his career before he had many of his uh, um, descent into the dark night of the soul after the breakup with Freud and you know, before he had learned a lot of the things that he later knew. 
Joe speculates that the guide's deceptiveness about giving their real names is caused by their having a deep dread of recognizing their own deaths and lack of corporeal existence. He notes that Seth, the famous entity that spoke through Jane Roberts, would occasionally ask for a glass of wine or beer and admitted to enjoying the counter with the physical realm through Jane Roberts' sensorium. Dr. Pinkerton and Russell attempt to manipulate vicarious sexual experiences. Joe also notes that Russell and Philippa, quote, refused to discuss their deaths and declaimed, we're not spirits, as if unhappy with the post-mortem condition. Dr. Pinkerton, claiming to know so much about earthbound spirits, uttered the phrase, lost soul, with a prolonged cry of anguish. I am intrigued by these clues, unquote. Joel consults with a Dr. Joel Whitten, who studied several mediums as a researcher with the Toronto Society for Psychical Research. He also concluded that the guides were trickster entities, quote, who would pose as whatever the inquirer, either consciously or unconsciously, wanted them to be, unquote. He also noted the extraordinary possessiveness they showed for the body of the medium, especially revealing, Dr. Whitten points out, quote, um, was Russell's accusation that I was negating the entity's earthly lives and karma. Russell is afraid of not existing, said Dr. Witten. You've stepped on his fear. His existence must be tenuous or he wouldn't comment on it. A true guide who had a conscious existence in the between life state would not be threatened by your revelations. We always defend ourselves against that which we fear. In my opinion, he's attached himself to the medium because it's his way of continuing his existence vicariously, of trying to assure himself that he's alive. In his need to exist, he's playing the role of guide. He's a parasite. So are the others, very troubled, frightened, neurotic entities. Perhaps the medium has drawn these discarnates to herself because her fear is of dying, of not existing. Like attracts like. You have stumbled onto a nest of neuroses in both this world and the next. The red flag of neurosis is to do something that reveals your fear. Sigmund Freud called it the compulsion to repeat. Unconsciously but deliberately, Russell and the others led you, fed you false data so that they would be confronted with their worst fear, the fear that they do not exist. That's what they want to hear. That's what they are most afraid of. The mobilization of Russell's defenses proves the hypothesis. Unquote. Brilliant analysis. Joe concludes. Um, ancient spiritual teachings form a wide range of, from a wide range of cultures tell of hosts or disembodied beings inhabiting a dimension which lies closest to Earth. This is the lower astral realm a gloomy cesspool of dead people, of, of, the dead, of the dead, peopled by the spirits of those who have lived base, ignorant, or selfish lives, afflicted with all manner of craving for terrestrial pleasure. Their decadent existence thrives on attachment to needy and unsuspecting individuals on earth, and so they masquerade as guides or teachers, developing emotional attachments to earthly humans and recycling the erudition available to all who inhabit the non-material universe. Their thinking processes are as rapid as they are Machiavellian. Their vampiric need of human energies is boundless. 
These earthbound spirits, or in Tibetan phraseology, pritas, or hungry ghosts, are individuals whose minds, at the point of physical death, have been incapable of disentangling from desire. Thus enslaved, the personality becomes trapped on the lower planes, even as it retains for a while its memory and individuality, hence the term lost soul, a residual entity that is no more than an astral corpse in waiting. Emanuel Swedenborg, who claimed to be able to pierce clairvoyantly the veil of the spiritual worlds, warned at great length about the brilliant and delusive nature of many communicating entities. Such evil-seducing spirits were said to be deceitful men and women who desired in death to hold the living in thrall to their duplicity. In Arcana Celestia, published a century before the founding of modern spiritualism, he explained how they cuddle up to their victims. So this is a quote from Swedenborg. When spirits begin to speak with man, they conjoin themselves with his thoughts and affections. They put, they put on all things of his memory. Thus all things which the man has learned and imbibed from infancy, the spirits suppose these things to be their own. Unquote. Sweden, but now we're going back to quoting Joe Fisher. Swedenborg maintained that the worst spirits of all were those, quote, who have been in evils from love of self and at the same time inwardly and in themselves have acted from deceit, unquote. In Heaven and Hell, he tells how these entities like to flutter about mortals like phantoms, secretly infusing them with evil by penetrating the emotions. Okay, and this is a quote from Swedenborg up next. They perceive and smell out the affections as, dog do, as dogs do wild beasts in the forest. Where they perceive good affections, they instantly turn them into evil ones, leading and bending them in a wonderful manner by means of the other's delights, and this so secretly and with such malignant skill that the other knows nothing of it. In the world, these were the men who deceitfully captivated the minds of others, leading and persuading them by the delights of their affections or lusts, unquote. Uh, for a great vision of how this can work, uh, uh, Norman Mailer totally shocked me with an amazing masterpiece, a late novel, I think it was the last novel he wrote, it was called, I think, maybe The Light in the Forest. And it's told from the point of view of a demon who has been assigned to basically influence uh, Adolf Hitler, to be who he becomes, but he begins by uh, influencing Hitler's father and maybe even other ancestors. It's a very subtle process where he directs him toward the path of evil, um, and it's through things like manipulating dreams and, and, and so forth. It's a fascinating uh, novel with a real insight into how this could work. Uh, I view the possessing entities as the true patients, wrote Dr. Edith Fure in The Unquiet Dead. They are suffering greatly without even realizing it. Virtual prisoners, they are trapped on the earth plane, feeling exactly as they did moments before their deaths, which may have been decades before." Unquote. Back in 1924, Dr. Carl Wicklin told in 30 Years Among the Dead how disincarnate, discarnate intelligences were attracted to the magnetic light emanating from mortals. Consciously or unconsciously, certain entities attach themselves wherever possible to these auras, finding an avenue of expression through influencing, obsessing, or possessing their victims. 
Less resistance was offered when the vital forces were lowered, allowing obtruding spirits to influence the host with their own thoughts and emotions, weakening willpower, and contributing to mental confusion and distress. And distress. Uh, Dr. Wicklin, <coughs> sorry, lost my place here. Dr. Wickland concludes, these earthbound spirits are the supposed devils of all ages, devils of human origin, byproducts of human selfishness, false teachings and ignorance, thrust blindly into a spirit existence and held there in bondage of ignorance. The influence of these discarnate entities is the cause of many of the inexplicable and obscure events of earth life and of a large part of the world's misery. Purity of life and motive or high intellectuality do not necessarily offer protection. Many earthbound spirits are conscious of influencing mortals, but enjoy their power, seeming to be without scruples." Unquote. Joe joins many other esoteric researchers in warning about the use of the Ouija board. I, Jonathan, um, have witnessed dramatic telepathic and psychokinetic effects the last time I engaged with the Ouija board, which was in the 80s, but will no longer go near one. Uh, or at least I'm very, <laughs> I'm very cautious about going near one. I haven't gone near one. I don't know. I don't like absolutisms particularly, but uh, I certainly don't have one in the house right now. Uh, Joe... Uh, points out, the Ouija board attracts earthbound spirits more readily than any other inanimate device, and those who choose to play this trans-dimensional distraction run the risk of being influenced by the most devious tricksters imaginable. In Ouija, the most dangerous game, Soaker Hunt, um, presents a succession of cases in which people sacrificed their, their will and judgment to invisible guides with disastrous consequences. Um, and I guess this is a quote from uh, that book. Um, because of the intimate nature of the information revealed, writes Hunt, um, <clears throat> the Ouija board is incredibly seductive. The more suggestible a player, the more dangerous uh, the Ouija game. Sorry, I was just trying to underline the book here. I've got a tendency to work on documents while I'm podcasting them and it creates some unfortunate pauses. I apologize for that. Just irresistible to, as an English teacher, to hold, uh, fix errors. It's hard to hold back from that. Soaker Hunt presents a succession of cases in which people sacrifice their will and judgment to invisible guides with disastrous consequences. Because of the infinite Intimate nature of the information revealed, writes Hunt, the Ouija board is incredibly seductive. Um, the more suggestible a player, the more dangerous the Ouija game. So I guess I repeated that, but it's worth repeating. Seth, whose eloquence gave ambassadorial status um, uh, in the New Age movement, what was uh, first, whose eloquence gave ambassadorial status in the New Age movement, was first contacted via a Ouija board. Joe points out the many clear warnings by Jesus and biblical prophets about communication with the dead. Uh, this is quoting Joe Fisher now. Jesus Christ and the biblical prophets had nothing good to say about communication with the dead. 
Jesus casting out unclean spirits and devils on many occasions. In the Bible, those who consult with spirits are placed in the same category as murderers, liars, and fornicators. Deuteronomy 18, uh, 9, 12 commands, There shall be found among you there shall not be found among you anyone that uses divination or a consulter of familiar spirits or a necromancer. <clears throat> For all that do these things are an abomination to the Lord. Unquote. The book of Revelation warns that those who unrepentantly practice spiritism invite <clears throat> the quote, second death unquote, of everlasting destruction. To converse with earthbound spirits is to share their fate. Spirits and demons, followers of Lucifer, who joined in rebellion against God, are often cited interchangeably as cunning and deceitful beings, intent on corrupting the unwary. In the words of 2 Corinthians 14, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is therefore a simple thing for his agents to masquerade as agents of good. And that's unquote. But of course, because of these biblical injunctions, we have to be careful about the material, that, uh, that people aren't merely being influenced by ancestral prejudices as well. So it kind of points and cuts both ways as far as the um, biblical injunctions. And it may throw the baby out with the bathwater because it could, um, by shutting off the whole idea even of communicating with discarnate spirits, um, may cause some people to uh, not access helpful spirits that may also be out there. Nothing says that they all are bad or parasitic. Joe investigates other cases of channeling that are much harder to disconfirm. In a couple of cases, there are discarnate doctors whose past life info checks out and are even recognized by living relatives of the deceased. But even these cases have some unsettling details that leave Joe very suspicious that these may be even more clever discarnates. Joe writes, I was haunted by one of Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Powell's observations in the astral body. He wrote that it was impossible uh, to distinguish truth from falsehood and communications from the next world, since the resources of the astral plane can be used to delude persons on the physical plane to such an extent that no reliance can be placed even on what seems like the most convincing proof. Wow, that's a tough one. Commenting on a medium healing case that occurred in Mexico City, Joe points out, in The Beautiful Side of Evil, uh, Michelson tells us um, how she marveled at the spirit surgeon's abilities, um, encouraged in her appreciation by Hermanito's frequent invocation of the names of God and Jesus Christ. Once, however, she was paralyzed by a look of intense hatred which passed fleetingly across Paquita's face while Hermanito uh, was in control. Then Michelson observed that not all of Hermanito's patients recovered, even when, they said they, even when he said they would, and she realized, though, though most people felt no pain while under Hermanito's care, committed Christians tended to suffer hideously. Unquote. As Joe points out, an overarching problem with spirits uh, who work through mediums is that they violate uh, the, the self-reliance of, and at the very least, the mediums they work uh, of at, very, at the very least the mediums they work through, taking control of their bodies and wills. 
they also encourage a spiritual problem I have uh, referred to as um, mislocation of the Godhead, uh, see casting precious into the cracks of doom, uh, which is also a podcast. They encourage those who interact with them to become infatuated and dependent and to look to them for divine guidance. I'm reminded of the David Bowie character in the movie Labyrinth who says approximately, All I ask is that you love me, fear me, and obey me, and I'll be your slave forever. More evolved entities do not resort uh, to possession. Quote, Spiritual teachers are in agreement that evolved non-physical entities uh, influence humanity telepathically without speech. Higher beings are silent. They simply radiate knowing and love, said the venerable um, Namyal Rinpoche. Although I am against one-size-fits-all formulations, this behavioral distinction between benign and parasitic spirits has a lot of validity. The spiritual ally that I have long experienced in my own life I've touched on this a little bit in my writings here and there, like in Vision at Chichen Itza, but I mostly keep it private. Communicates in a non-directive telepathic fashion, leaving me to form into words the emanation that is always loving, non-intrusive, and that never overrides my will or takes over my body. The influence seems directed toward enhancement of my own self-realization and service, not toward vicarious thrills. So it has big qualitative differences that are quite consistent um, and quite in contrast to the entities described in this book. But it should also be emphasized that malign entities are not limited to possession um, or mediums to exert influence. Subtle, stealthy, telepathic influence by disincarnates to promote dark, compulsive thoughts, feelings, and cravings cannot be ruled out as a possibility, and if it can be done at all, then that allows the possibility that it may be widespread and a major player in human psychology. And this is frequently said by mediums that, that uh, an alcoholic spirit may influence people at a bar, you know, and to drink more and egg them on and so forth, to vicariously participate and to control. Earlier, I described what I experienced as an energetic attack on the last night I read the book. I awakened to find a massive energy drain occurring from my solar plexus, plexus which felt molten and electrical. This episode occurred on my last night of reading the book, but I saved a couple of chapters to read the following morning. In the epilogue of the book, Joe describes a very unusual and alarming medical problem that occurred when he was preparing to write about the dark side of the guides. A strange swelling infection that became agonizingly painful developed around his navel of a sort that rarely occurs except in newborn babies. An ultrasound scan reveals a malevolent growth like an inverted pyramid lying beneath my belly button. I'm just uh, taking this in because it's been a long time since I've read this. As he is just coming out of surgery, Joe gets an unexpected phone call from Claire. He hadn't told a soul about his admission to the hospital. Claire tells Joe that Dr. Pinkerton told her. Joe wonders if Dr. Pinkerton might not have been the source of the strange infection. Joe relates, uh, quote, even and perhaps especially after my recovery, my resolve to write this book was constantly threatened by a deep-seated fear. Would the spirits find a way to prevent the story of my foray into the murky world of channeling, um, 
prevent the story of my foray into the murky world of channeling from reaching the general public. Unquote. After the first edition of the book is published, Joe receives a letter from an ex-spiritualist woman in England. She corroborates Joe's observation uh, that the disincarnates are particularly interested in manipulating sexual relationships. But she offers, she differs with the lost soul's interpretation of the guides. Quote, personally, I feel this is too kind an interpretation. The typical image of a lost soul would be of a spirit trapped between worlds, perhaps unaware of its physical death, groping in an ignorance which prevents it from having the ability to progress. Compare this to the entities we have both experienced. They are masters of deception. They are articulate and eloquent with vast knowledge of philosophy at their disposal, whether fabricated or otherwise. They are able to cooperate and liaise sufficiently with others of their kind to devise strategies against us and maintain a continuity of information given to us. They have apparently limitless powers of precognition and access to any information they choose, past, present, or future, enabling them, among other things, to impersonate whomever, whomsoever they wish with ease. This is not my idea of a poor lost soul stumbling in the darkness. The one thing I think we have both established beyond doubt is this. They are smart. They are very smart. Any lost soul this intelligent would surely have the ability and knowledge to progress to some higher state. If these souls are simply too evil to do so, and therefore have no knowledge of any supposedly higher realm, where do they obtain their vast understanding of philosophy? Not from living in a dark void trapped between worlds, that's for sure. It's a fascinating set of points, but uh, it just creates more questions than answers, of course, which is what a great observation will often do. The ex-spiritualist connects the phenomenon she and Joe have experienced to UFO abductions, which also frequently have a sexual component, and, and also to the origins of major religions. Quote, Nearly every religion in the world was initially based on psychic manifestations, visions on mountaintops, images of God appearing to prophets, voices in the mind, just as our modern-day mediums hear voices, see visions... Indeed, I have heard of, of certainly more than one medium who claims her contact is Jesus or God himself. These beings in their different guises have directly formed our very religions, and anyone who has studied the history of organized religion must be aware that religion has been responsible for more death and destruction than just about anything else, and yet we all stagger blindly on, oblivious to this manipulation for thousands of years." Unquote. Certainly, the Gnostics would agree with this interpretation, as they left many warnings that the evil entities they called archons would manipulate us through religious ideologies. And you can see my document, A Gnostic View of Mind Parasites. It's on the site. Joe concludes the book. Like a secret agent, I had to expose myself to danger in order to, retrieve, to retrieve important information. I am simply grateful to have survived my confrontation with the liars and deceivers of the spirit world. Only when the struggle was far advanced did I finally comprehend the meager state of my resources as well as the might and swiftness of the unseen enemy. Let this be a warning to us all. Unfortunately, uh, for Joe Fisher, the story did not end with the conclusion of the book.
which is what I just read. The Anomalist reports, and that's a periodical, obviously. Joe Fisher, 53, author of The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, died on Wednesday, May 9, 2001, by jumping off a limestone cliff at Alora Gorge near his hometown of Fergus, Ontario, Canada. A variety of personal, of, of, a variety of, uh, excuse me, lost my place here. A variety of personal problems, including a growing list of unpaid bills for the writer, appeared to have pushed him over the edge. In one of, the, one of his last communications with his editor-in-chief, Patrick Yu, at, at uh, Powerview Books, Fisher noted that the spirits were still after him for having written his final book. By an odd and unsettling coincidence, Powerview was my literary agent in the 90s, and then later, after writing this again in 2011 to 2012. It was Len Belzer, my agent um, at, in the 1990s part, um, uh, <clears throat> and a close friend of Alex Gray, who first told me about what led uh, to Gray's masterwork, Demons and Deities Drinking from the Milky Pool. Uh, and you can see the document and podcast, Alex Gray and the Mind Parasites, for more on that. From the publisher's website, Powerview Press. Troubled by personal problems, as well as by the spirits he claimed to have angered in writing The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, Joe Fisher took his own life on May 9th, 2001. That he would do so is all the more surprising considering what he had written earlier in The Case for Reincarnation. Quote, and this is from his earlier book. As much as the suicidal personality feels able to escape the world by getting rid of the body, reincarnation's revolving door ensures that all hope of escape is short-lived. Those who learn that they have killed themselves in past lives are quickly brought to the realization that suicide, far from being an answer to life's problem, is instead the violent breaking of the lifeline. If the suicide could only realize the resulting intensification of difficulty which must enter the life to come, suicide would never be attempted. Wow. Unquote. Apparently, Joe also lost his close, closest friend on the same cliff. And although there is no way of knowing how much the discarnates may have played a role in this presumed suicide, there are some ominous foreshadows in the book. Russell warned Sanford that if he left the group, he would commit suicide in a fit of depression, unquote. Also rather ominous is Russell's question uh, when Joe confronts him about deceptions. But how could you be downfalled if you are free to choose, free to challenge, unquote. Given that there are examples of the disincarnates taking over motor control from some of their charges in the book, one can only wonder what part they may have played in Joe Fisher's all-too-literal downfall. And it almost seems like something uh, a little bit prescient in the word choice, downfalled, because that's not usually a verb, that's a noun. And so that's a very, uh, it's almost like uh, a little prophetic trick put in there. I've saved chapter seven in which Joe discusses the history of human contact with discarnates for the end. The conclusion of Joe's investigation and his life are so damning of discarnate contact that it seemed appropriate to conclude with a more general discussion, as well as some neutral or positive examples of entity contact. 
Many spiritual traditions have been founded on entity contact, um, as that woman friend of Joe was saying about the great religions. So when people talk about channeling and medium and ship and all this kind of stuff, like it's new stuff, I mean, this is, this is the stuff that Bibles are made of and so forth. And the evidence is mixed about the benign, malign nature of the entities contacted. What I find especially troubling are the cross-cultural examples of entities influencing various sorts of blood sacrifices. Joe reports, quote, The nomadic hunters and gatherers of the now extinct Chirua tribe of Uruguay conducted a painful version of the vision quest. After making their way to the top of an isolated hill, they would slash and gouge their flesh with their weapons until, in delirium, each was granted an hallucination of a living being. This being was at once adopted by the native and invoked in times of peril as his guardian. The Plains Crow tribesmen, in seeking the all-important vision, climbed a remote mountain, stripped, fasted, went without water, and finally cut off one joint of his left forefinger. The dismembered appendage was then held up to the sun as the native pleaded with his guardian for good fortune." Unquote. So kind of showing a cross-cultural interest in the blood sacrifice. And of course, this is uh, in the Bible, uh, where Yahweh is pleased by the smell of uh, bulls that are being, whose flesh is being burned in front of the temple and so forth. But later, uh, there's a relenting, and it's decided that that isn't necessary, apparently. And that, that kind of goes with the uh, Reformed Jewish idea that the Bible represents different stages of evolution and we, we see the, uh, the growth of human conscience and so forth as we move from animal sacrifices to the kosher laws and so forth, which uh, many Reformed Jews feel uh, should, are, are logically continued into vegetarianism or veganism. Um, but it, it, people who are fundamentalists and uh, will attach to some of the darker things from the older parts of religions uh, can cause lots of havoc, of course. Socrates, in his Daemon, uh, what, his, what he called it, appeared to be a more benign case of entity contact. This is a quote from Joe Fisher. Socrates, the great Athenian philosopher, spoke in the 5th century BCE of a being whose voice, from time to time, dissuaded him from some undertaking, but never directed him as to what he should do. Socrates told his friends that when a man dies, his guardian spirit, which, was watched over, which has watched over the course of his life, escorts him to the place of judgment from when he will be guided to the initial stage of the post-mortem existence. The wise and disciplined soul, he said, will follow the guide, but the soul that is deeply attached to the body and its pleasures will hover around the visible world for a long time. So we can see sort of qualitative differences between entities. We shouldn't uh, judge them all um, as evil deceivers. Um, and, and the thing that seems to most uh, distinguish the one kinds from the others is the extent to which they manipulate and take over the will. So uh, Socrates' spirit doesn't tell him to do things, but it kind of sort of gently suggests things not to do, or I've I've kind of the influence of the spirit being I live alongside of, you know, that could just be uh, what Jung called the self, the totality of my psychic structures that therefore feels somewhat autonomous because it is uh, um, 
at a different level than my waking ego. Uh, it, in its presence, certain unworthy things are experienced as unworthy, and I might be more likely to hold back from them. Uh, but it doesn't come in to tell me what to do or to uh, seek to manipulate me or to insist I must do this, that, or the other thing, uh, which is a lot more troubling. It seems to constantly, like a very gentle and egoless teacher, let's say, uh, it just influences by example, by its own, his own energy, and uh, without the use of coercion or direction or anything like that, sort of uh, respecting my free will. And it's like in teaching we have a saying, the guide on the side, not the sage on the stage. And it's something I always try and remind myself of because as a narcissistic personality type, I like to be the sage on the stage. And, but that is not really, that's more about me showing off and wanting attention. It's not respecting uh, others um, who might be better served by a guide on the side that was allowing their thoughts and their realizations to take, you know, front and center and so forth. <clears throat> okay, so I, you know, I can find aspects of my own shadow in the shadows of even disincarnate beings, and it's important to do that because in finding a dark they out there, we have to be careful, as Nietzsche said, uh, the danger in fighting monsters is that we may become them, so we want to be careful that in finding a dark they, that we don't project all of our darkness uh, onto them and not recognize our own complicity in certain things. Okay. Although the Bible has many warnings about communicating with the dead, it also has many positive references to entities. And this is Joe Fisher writing now. The Bible, of course, mentions ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14, without spelling out their perpetually watchful responsibilities. But the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which dates back to 1300 BCE, succinctly expresses the unremitting vigilance that attends all who walk the earth. The angel, meaning one who is sent, a messenger, personifies spiritual guardianship in Christianity, the guardian angel being a particularly potent symbol to Roman Catholics. As recently as August 6, 1986, in a general audience at the Vatican, Pope John Paul II spoke at length about the reality of guardian angels. Catholics insist that man's goodness, or lack of it, has no bearing on the quality or degree of angelic attention. Quote, every single human being on earth, whether Christian or non-Christian, whether in grace or in sin, remains during its entire life under the care of a guardian angel, unquote, states Jesuit theologian Joseph um, Husseline in Our Guardian Angels, which relates to how I experience uh, being I alongside of, I just don't try and uh, I'm cautious about forming a fixed conclusion about the nature of it, whether it's the self, whether it's an autonomous being assigned as my caseworker or whatever. I, I try and allow for the ambiguity. Um, you could check out the Oracle card. Uh, it might be a podcast about exploring ambiguity. The ability to tolerate ambiguity is one of the signs of a mature mind. Um, so you don't, and, and it's especially important with paranormal research not to get too fixed on conclusions. We talked about this before. And, but continuing with the 
Joe Fisher quote, the Bible mentions angels on nearly 300 occasions, citing their power and solicitousness. Unquote. Numerous well-known figures have had contact with entities. Quote Joe Fisher again, many famous people have claimed to share, claimed to share communication with entities in the next dimension. Joan of Arc conversed with a disembodied voice which inspired her to great deeds in France. Robert Louis Stevenson credited the whole of his published fiction to the single-handed product of some unseen collaborator. Um, so this is something more than what most writers experience because most writers, or I experience this quite a lot, where you know, insights and so forth come pouring through that this would be called by John Climo open channeling. Um, but no, no particular source is revealed, so it could be one's own unconscious and so forth. But in some cases, like this one with Robert Louis Stevenson, people will insist that like they were literally the channel, that, that something just worked through them and it wasn't them at all, but it was something totally other and that they were just almost doing automatic writing. Uh, now, of course, one can argue that they're disassociation from their own unconscious might make it seem to be a separate entity. Um, in some cases that might be true, in other cases it might actually be entities, we just don't know. Uh, or it may vary. Uh, continuing with Joe Fisher's writing, daily experience convinced the poet W.B. Yeats that, quote, there are spiritual intelligences which can warn us and advise us, unquote. And many reports of that, by the way, in the survival literature where people uh, we'll hear a voice that will uh, tell them what to do uh, when they're in a mountain climbing accident. In some cases, an actual physical entity will appear um, and pull them out. Uh, they'll see a hand reaching for them. Uh, one case I remember, uh, a, the police get a call uh, from somebody that the man is, an old man is having a heart attack. Uh, when they get to his apartment, they find there was that the, the door is opened for them by an older guy in a plaid shirt. And then when they get to the body lying unconscious on the floor, they see uh, it's an old man with a plaid shirt, the same shirt, the same old man. And there no longer is the one that opened the door and possibly made the phone call. And Henry Miller commented that he was, quote, in the hands of unseen powers while writing his powerful novel, Tropic of Cancer. Someone, he said, is dictating to me constantly and with no regard for my health. Hmm, it's interesting because that one was very sex-saturated. I've been meaning to get back to reading that. Because that suggests possibly a, a darker spirit since it's, it's not concerned for the health of the channel. Carl Jung, the great Swiss psychoanalyst, regularly encountered a guardian spirit named Philemon, a, quote, force that was not myself, unquote, who, quote, seemed quite real as if he were a living personality, unquote. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, was told independently by seven mediumistic individuals that he was accompanied by an elderly bearded man with tufted eyebrows, the marked characteristic, characteristics of deceased naturalist Alfred Russell Wallace, who was actually named by several of those who were able to perceive him. Unquote. Um, Joe Fisher. And this is me writing again. A fairly well-known person whom I won't name here, a man I consider to be an absolute genius with whom I worked in the 80s, heard voices who gave him information that seemed to be inspired and of great value. 
And for most of my life, I've been aware of a somewhat androgynous being living alongside me who, whom I can visualize, but who almost never intrudes into my mind with voice and instead influences by presence. He seems to be there whenever I cast my attention in his direction, and there is always the sense that he flows through time in a much different way than I do. Um, there is always uh, from him a great depth of feeling, humility, and compassion for suffering. And if more specific communication is required by me, he allows me to use my mind and word-forming ability to translate his presence and thought forms into words and sentences. He never takes over any part of my body, never claims to be a doctor or to have specific past life identity, never raises even the smallest red flag in my ever-fault-finding mind or intuition. I've noticed, however, that if I travel, he will tend to be unusually present, as if curiously witnessing a new part of the world alongside of me, but without taking over my senses. Julian Jaynes, in his book, The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, makes a case that up until the time of Homer, many peoples of the ancient world regularly heard voices they attributed to gods in their heads. There were frequent laments in the time that followed about the gods having fallen silent. So we don't want to throw out any divine babies in the scummy bathwater of parasitic disincarnates. We do want to, based on the findings of this book, be especially wary of entities that take someone over or are otherwise intrusive. It does seem like a valid principle that a benevolent entity would not intrude to a degree that compromises our free will and need for independent development. When I was an English teacher, I remember exploring an education philosophy that said the teacher should be a guide on the side, not the sage on the stage. I guess I should watch out for my tangents because sometimes I'm repeating what was already written. That's always stayed with me, especially since as a narcissistic personality type, I would enjoy being the sage on the stage. But since I am a fellow mortal, this tendency may be more acceptable, whereas a discarnate guide, but obviously I need to work on it, whereas a discarnate guide that likes to be the sage on the stage, like Ramtha, the new age celebrity, discarnate that speaks through Jay-Z Knight, is far more suspect. I'm not claiming to be an ego-transcending divine figure, for example, um, but a self-admitted recovering narcissist and so forth. But it is not just new age entities that are suspect. Often people harshly judge things that are fantastical and part of a more recently minted sect, like John Smith's encounters in the Book of Mormon or the extraterrestrial mythology of Scientology, and they forget that all the great religions have equally fantastical stories, but which, thanks to the patina of antiquity and endless repetition down the millennia, have gained gravitas and respectability. The more curious, most cursory examination of the last 6,000 years of history, however, reveals that more blood has been spilled, more torture and oppression has occurred in the name of these very same religions than of anything else, and some religions more than others. Uh, uh, the least violent Taoism uh, is also the most feminine. The Gnostics, writing in the Nag Hammadi Library discovered in Upper Egypt only at the end of World War II, warned us of a parasitic species they called the Archons, who were manipulating us through religious ideologies. I think that we are badly overdue for an examination and reappraisal of religious doctrines that derive from entity contact and especially need to consider whether entities may be manipulating fundamentalists of any religion toward agendas and actions of hate and violence. 
Lastly, we need to consider the subtle ways that discarnates may influence our thoughts, emotions, sexuality, and behavior. Joe Fish's apparent suicide adds an ominous implication that these entities are not to be underestimated, that awareness of them does not end their power. There are more things in heaven and in earth, among other dimensions, than are dreamt of in rationalist philosophy. The extreme importance of the findings of the siren call of the hungry ghosts and of the unanswered questions we are left with reconfirm my impression that this is one of the most important books I have ever encountered. Also, to paraphrase Joe Fisher, I'm sorry, to paraphrase J.B.S. Haldane, and uh, this will be the most solid conclusion that we can bring out of this book. Reality is not only stranger than you think, it's stranger than you can think. Thank you very much for listening. This is Jonathan Zapp of zapporacle.com, and this concludes the podcast of The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts. Take care.